Hi folks, it's your host W. Curtis Preston and I wanted to give you some great news. Druva liked my latest O'Reilly book enough to sponsor it and you can get a free copy by just going to druva.com slash podcast. Hope you like it. In this premiere episode of No Hardware Required, we give our technical predictions for 2020, especially concerning cloud. Our Druva guest this week will be Prim Anathakrishnan, VP of Products, and Stephen Manley, Chief Technologist. Thanks for listening. I'm down here in sunny Southern California, Prem. How's it going where you're at? Going great. You know, you're quite lucky, Curtis. It's actually raining cats and dogs here uh, today in the Bay Area. Is it really? Well, down here in Southern California, it is, you know, as we call it, uh, Thursday. Um, <laughs> it's beautiful outside, sunny, and you know it's always sunny here. I don't know. I don't know why we even have a weather channel. You know, it's the beginning of 2020, and we we did a predictions piece a little while ago, and I I thought we would just each pick one of these ten predictions and talk about it a little bit. And I thought I would start with Stephen. Stephen, you you talked a little bit about this little thing called containers. Do you do you have a pretty strong opinion about that? Yeah, you know, it's uh, w- one of the things I've I've found actually since since joining Druva is is really understanding that building applications and and for the cloud and running in the cloud, it, it's not quite the same as just writing an app on premises and saying, yeah, I can just run that up in the cloud and it's going to be fine, and and so. I think people in, in, in this next year and the next couple of years, frankly, are going to learn that they're going to want to design their applications differently to take advantage of what the cloud brings, but also to uh, you know, avoid some of the penalties where cloud is, again, different than how they run on premises. And I think you know, containers are going to be a, a really interesting spot for that. You know, because you hear a lot of people talk about, well, you know, I, I'm going to go serverless, and and that's a big leap uh, in terms of, you know, sort of developer education, and 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 it's almost a, a leap too far for a lot of people. Uh, whereas I think containers will be this really interesting spot in between, where you look and you say, I can I can develop pretty similarly to how I did on prem, um, but uh, but but that I can. Uh, I, I can I can take advantage of cloud and and in particular right when you think of cloud you think I want things to be able to run dynamically I want to not be tied to any underlying resource uh, you know I, I want to be able to to be flexible in terms of you know the the compute I'm using I want to be flexible in terms of where I'm running all these sorts of things and, and I think containerization and Kubernetes provides a really nice infrastructure that lets you do that. And, and the reason that's so appealing, right, is is when I ran on-prem, I, I really was always kind of over-provisioning, right? I had to provision for the worst case, uh, whether it was storage IOPS or storage IOPS plus the IOPS I needed for my backup. Uh, I had to over-provision my compute. I had over-provision my network for always the worst case, which means, you know, I, I was underutilized most of the time. And... And, and there's no there's there's no value in doing that in the cloud, right? And and in fact, cloud makes it much easier to be able to flex up and down. And so I think you're going to see a lot of people saying this cloud model is really appealing. The the pay for what you use model is really appealing. How am I going to be able to to take advantage of that? 
And I, I think containers is going to be, again, a really interesting middle ground that lets them take advantage of the dynamic nature of cloud uh, without having to become full-on cloud experts. And I would think that that would map well to what, as I understand it, containers appeal mostly to those that are doing their own development, right? So you're you're not going to go to Oracle and ask it to run in a container. You're going to uh, you're going to use a an in-house developed app uh, and, and run that in a in a Kubernetes environment. And 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 I definitely agree with you that this idea that it it would make it. That, that it's a perfect match with the cloud. Not everybody's running their Kubernetes and Docker world in cloud, but it's def if you are running that world, it is a perfect match to how the cloud operates. Would you agree, Prem? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, a lot of the initiatives um, around containers are being uh, run by developers today. Uh, but one of the questions that I often uh, run into when I talk to customers uh, that are trying to build new age applications with containers is what does that really mean for my data? Because, you know, containers can be stateless. In fact, a lot of the containerization work uh, means that the data is not really attached uh, directly to the containers uh, because that's what gives you the portability. Uh, and I'm just curious to see, Stephen, given the work that you've done, you know, what, what do you think about uh, data protection in particular uh, around containers? I do have my own point of views on that. But it'll be really interesting to get uh, your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a couple of things. I, I think uh, one o over the last year or so, I think um, you know, kind of the the Kubernetes storage SIG, the the working group uh, has made a lot of progress in terms of enabling stateful containers uh, in a Kubernetes environment. Uh, in particular, the container storage interface really opens up the ability to store some data to to store some data locally. You know, pretty efficiently, pretty flexibly in a way that, let's say, 12, 18 months ago wasn't feasible. Uh, and so so I think that's one, is that you'll start to see more and more stateful containers because the truth is when you develop an application, most interesting applications do have data. You know, that, that's what makes them interesting is they're, they're operating on, on data, whether it's about you know, systems or people or infrastructure, there, there's some sort of data that you're going to want to be manipulating. And I think CSI in this coming year is really going to thrive and mature so that we can start to get to that whole, you know, infrastructure as code, data as code kind of thing, where you, you're going to be able to check in and check out entire versions of applications from you know, not, not just the, you know, sort of the containerized code, but even the point in time version. And, and so I think what that's going to lend itself towards in a data protection space then is we're going to need to be able to protect, obviously, the data in the containers. Um, now, some of those containers will store their data with external databases. You know, if I'm running an AWS, for example, I might have an Aurora or a MySQL running an RDS or Dynamo or something like that. So being able to protect those external databases is going to be important. And then tying that together with protecting the actual sort of Kubernetes uh, configuration so that I can spin up and spin down that entire environment from any point in time. Uh, so I could do, you know, CICD pipeline or I could roll back to recover my environment or do a disaster recovery. And so, so I think it's going to put a, a really interesting um, set of pressure on data protection vendors to not just protect data, not just protect databases, but to really start looking at how do you protect an overall infrastructure and enable people to recover it? Because 
as I get more and more involved as a Kubernetes developer, that's really what I expect. Just boom, give me this point in time here because I wanted to check something out. And and when I was building Kubernetes apps, that was that was always my big thing is, you know, this this application worked yesterday and then I made, you know, three people made check-ins and it doesn't work today. Let me roll back to each of those points in time to see who broke it, right? So as opposed to pointing fingers or doing a lot of low-level debugging, we can narrow it down to a single check-in pretty quickly. And so I think more and more of this is is, is going to become common uh, in the environment. And it'll change the way we think of data protection because it's not just protecting data, it's protecting all the metadata uh, around the environment as we well. We could probably talk the entire podcast just about containers, but I'll just say I agree with you. And uh, I think that um, that containers are going to change data protection even more so than um, the likes of virtualization did. So let's talk about, uh, let's move on to ransomware. One of my favorite topics. And by favorite, I mean, <laughs> like, I don't like ransomware, but uh, it is, it has become, if I say pervasive, I, I think that would not be an overstatement. When you look at incidents like what happened in Texas, where something like 20 cities or entities, they got taken out simultaneously by ransomware. It turned out that they shared a service provider and that's how they all got attacked at the same time. And there are uh, many cities across the country as well as across the world and also businesses that they find themselves experiencing this disaster. I like to think of ransomware as a disaster, but it's, it's worse than like a typical natural disaster where you might get some warning. It's closer to say uh, an earthquake, something those of us who live in California are familiar with. It's a, it's a disaster that happens to you that happens without warning. And interestingly enough, unlike a, a typical natural disaster, you get, based on what I've seen, zero sympathy from the public that you have experienced this thing because they're just mad at you because your entity is, you know, why didn't you, why didn't you prepare for this? Right. But the reality is that unlike an earthquake or a hurricane or a tornado, this is specifically targeted in a way to not allow you to conduct business. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a targeted disaster that immediately takes you out of business. And so all of the uh, traditional DR techniques uh, just simply don't work in this world. And so I do agree that, you know, this this prediction here that ransomware will continue to focus on smaller, more, more vulnerable enterprises. What do we mean by that? The larger companies are starting to figure this out and they're putting protections in place. But a lot of smaller companies don't have a solid, uh, a, a DR plan or a DR system that will work in this scenario, right? The, the smaller you are, the, the more likely you are to have a, you know, a, a DR plan that either doesn't exist or it's the kind that, that just says, I, I don't even want to use it. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I pray that I never have to use it. What, what do you guys think? Yeah, you know, I, I think the ransomware incidents are really exposing a fundamental flaw in the security model that a lot of companies and enterprises have been following for the last several years, which is let me just uh, focus on the prevention measures and not have any way to recover or have enough resiliency 
to be able to recover from these uh, bad actors or you know any kind of these type of attacks. And, and I think uh, the industry is traditionally focused on uh, prevention measures so much that they have forgotten the basics that at the end of the day, the bad actors, uh, whether you know it, it is ransomware attacks or maybe even other kind of data breaches that are happening out there, those things are going to happen because your attack vectors have just increased uh, with uh, you know everything that's going on with applications running in the cloud, with mobility and everything that's going on out there. So, which is why you're seeing a lot of emphasis on cyber resilience uh, these days versus just cybersecurity. But what does that really mean? And to your point, Curtis, uh, the larger organizations have enough uh, resources, uh, they have enough uh, manpower and money power to at least put uh, best practices in place. They're starting to think about it. The smaller companies um, don't necessarily have those practices in place. Uh, and, and DR is definitely a critical piece of business continuity, but there's also... Uh, you have to think about your cyber response strategy. Do you have all the right measures in place? Do you have uh, adequate controls? Do you have adequate ways to recover uh, fast and, and keep your business healthy? And, and I think uh, this is exposing a significant gap in our industry. And that is why uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, uh, emphasis that needs to go into this from uh, solution providers, from managed service providers, but also from uh, software developers. There's a huge cultural piece in how software is developed. And uh, right from the get-go with security um, um, being, uh, you know, not an afterthought. So you're, we're going to start seeing a lot of uh, interesting trends emerge around this. Stephen, what, what, what do you think? Well, I mean, one of the things that, that struck me is, is as Curtis talked, Curtis uh, viewed it as, as a almost a disaster recovery problem and, and sort of pointing out that, you know, there's a lot of organizations that either don't really have an adequate disaster recovery plan or simply don't have a disaster recovery plan. And you came at it from the angle of, you know, sort of security. And, and, and I wonder if that's maybe part of the challenge is that who owns this, right? Is this a security problem? Is it a DR problem? Is it from, from what you guys are seeing, when people start to tackle the how do we deal with ransomware, who owns it in the organization and how do they go about solving it? Because because it was it was interesting, right? It almost you're talking about the same topic, but you came at it from two very different perspectives. Well, I think both of them have to happen, right? But I, and the answer to your question might simply be who called the meeting. Hopefully, <laughs> right? Hopefully, it was somebody high enough that can basically say you guys all need to solve this, right? This is definitely you do need an intrusion detection system, right, and prevention, uh, and you need a solid backup system and a DR system to reply if and when this does happen to you, right? Uh, and, and by the way, this is also a, a, a compliance issue, right? So when you talk about GDPR and CCPA, there are a, a lot of us ha have focused a lot on the privacy aspects and you know the, the, the right to ask them what data they have on you and the right to uh, have that data deleted if, it, it, you know, if there's no valid business reason to, to keep it. But also within that is that you're supposed to be protecting that data, uh, that, that if you are holding onto that data, you're supposed to protect it and be able to uh, bring it back uh, if and when it's needed. And so this is also a compliance issue. So, so we, just, we just added a third layer to, to who, who needs to be in that meeting. Yeah, you know, I think Stephen's comment uh, on who owns it is a really interesting one uh, because, you know, traditionally, if you look at it, uh, the storage uh, team within a large organization has typically owned, uh, you know, backup and recovery or DR. 
And the security people have been, again, very focused on prevention, putting in measures to prevent the bad actors from getting in. And I think the, there is a big awakening and realizing, uh, realization, uh, especially within the C-level community, going all the way up to uh, you know, a CISO or even uh, to the board levels in certain cases, where people are pushing more aggressively for cyber resiliency, uh, asking for a cyber response plan where you can bring the business back uh, on the feet and not really be impacted just because your prevention measures didn't work. And, and I think that's, this will require a strong cross-functional collaboration within uh, many organizations, especially the larger ones where there is a lot of silos today where security teams operate independently and they don't even look at their you know, data protection or backup uh, strategy uh, as a way uh, you know, to be able to recover data uh, when it comes to these type of incidents. And I think there is definitely a, a big awake, awakening and change that's happening there as I can see in the security space. And I think that we need more of that uh, as the industry starts to come together to solve uh, these challenges. Speaking of, of you, uh, Prem, uh, I know you have, uh, when, I, when I look at this list of, of predictions, I think you were the one that came up with this, this, the one on cyber insurers. Do you want, you want to talk about that one? Yeah, yeah, that's a really uh, interesting uh, trend, and I, I think this is going to continue to uh, increase and evolve. If you look at, um, at the end of the day, when you go through these ransomware incidents and what eventually happens out of it, there are a lot of companies that end up paying the ransom, right? And uh, in many cases, uh, they're doing that also because they know that they have insurance, which they have uh, taken a cyber insurance policy which covers a lot of the costs and um, you know expenses that the company has to pay out when it comes to these ransomware attacks. And when, and when you think about this now from the perspective of the cyber insurance companies, they are now taking on more and more risk, uh, you know, especially with all these insurance policies. And uh, if you look at some of the statistics out there, uh, PricewaterCoopers is actually projecting that uh, almost $7.5 billion will be spent in the next 10 years uh, towards uh, you know cyber insurance premiums, um, so that's a lot of money that's uh, you know that's going to be spent uh, you know towards paying out uh, premiums and claims. So I, I I truly believe that the cyber insurance industry, which has traditionally you know pretty much uh, not paid a lot of attention to how how much money they're paying out in claims, they're going to have to take a serious look at this and say how do we now start reducing the claims by advising or even putting in. Uh, conditions where their clients uh, will have much better hygiene in terms of uh, security posture and as well as data recovery practices. And, uh, you know, I, I expect them to fully strengthen the uh, partnerships with some of the data protection vendors as well, because at the end of the day, it is in the best interest for the cyber insurance companies to reduce the uh, number of claims that they're getting. And that can only happen if their um, clients or enterprises have really good hygiene. It's almost like, uh, you know, if you have a fire extinguisher at home, if you have better, uh, you know, locks on your doors and things like that, the home insurance companies uh, are rewarding you. Uh, you know, if you have a home alarm, th those are good hygiene and practices due to which your insurance premiums go down. And I think we're going to have to start, we'll, we'll be seeing some of those trends in the, uh, in the world that we all live in on the enterprise side of the equation as well. That's an interesting perspective, um, and, and one of the things that reminds me of is is back when I did more security, uh, I, I remember somebody once said, you know what compliance regulations are? 
they're really just baselines of good security. It's 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 almost just the basics of all right. You should be able to do this. Don't don't go uh, don't go hurt yourself. And in some sense, it feels a little bit like that, right? Where the insurance companies start to put in baselines of guys. This is just basic. You know, this is the basic best practices. You do this, and 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 you're now considered functional. Doesn't mean you're done. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do more. But it almost has that same feel of. We just need some someone to put some of these standards out, whether it is a, as a as a regulation or it's part of how you get insurance, so that that people can again, when you have these meetings, like we were talking about, whether it's with the security team or a C level team or the or the storage team or whomever it is, where you can say, All right, you don't have to make this up from scratch, right? Here's the basics. Here's how you get this done. All right, once that's done, let's talk about what, if anything, you want to do above and beyond uh, just sort of the the basic level you need to do. So it, it, I think the industry needs it, right? Because everybody feels like they're making it up from 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 first principles right now. Yeah, Stephen, you're spot on. And in fact, uh, I was talking to one of these cyber insurers recently. And as of today, they just... Uh, include this whole uh, response uh, payout as part of a line item called errors and omissions. So it doesn't really, uh, the, the industry hasn't really matured enough to the point where they can say, hey, look, there's a baseline of standards and best practices that um, you as an organization need to follow before I would pay out these claims. And if you don't meet that, then, you know, either your claim, uh, your premiums go up or, you know, you, you, you're not going to get the payout. And I think they're starting to look into that. And I think, well, specifically when it comes to data recovery practices, having backups is like basic hygiene. And if you look at a lot of these ransomware attacks, uh, you know, and the exposure, many com- a lot of this data is telling us that companies don't even have backup practices or they have backups that don't really work when you really need to restore and recover data from those backups uh, after these incidents. So I think cyber insurance uh, companies are going to start demanding better standards they're going to start demanding uh, better hygiene and, and processes um, to, from, from their clients so that they can protect their business, um, you know, in the future. Uh, you know how there's a, in a lot of cl- uh, contracts, there's the force majeure clause. Um, I wonder if, and I just did a little Googling, if there will be a, a force dom clause in future cyber insurance cl- uh, clauses. You know what that would be in, in, in case of acts of stupidity. Uh, we won't. We won't. We won't pay your claim. <laughs> My only worry about the cyber insurance folks is it's a little bit like what happened when many years ago we were worried that students couldn't afford college, so we started doing very low cost college loans, and in response, the colleges increased their price because the supply had, had increased. I, I do worry that as cyber insurance becomes more and more common and people uh, use it, whether they do the right thing or not, whether, you know, a premier prediction comes true or not. uh, My worry is that, that it will cause more ransomware attacks because it it increases the likelihood that someone will just call their insurance company and pay out rather than try to actually recover. I don't know. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting dimension to that, right? I mean, at the end of the day, there is money <laughs> that everybody is going after. And uh, the cyber insurance companies are continuing to pay out. And, and you know, honestly, it's not a bottomless pit. So at some point, uh, that's got to stop. I, I agree with you. I, I have seen cases where, um, 
you know, ransomware attacks have been driven mainly because the the bad actors know that somehow uh, the companies will arrange for the money and they're relying on, it's like a chain reaction. And, and the companies are now depending on the cyber insurance policies and they feel uh, that they're going to get adequate coverage. But at some point, uh, you know, this is going to come to a grinding halt where, you know, the cyber insurers are going to look at this and say, this is definitely not a viable business model. Uh, and then they're going to have to start enforcing um, better standards. And, uh, you know, this they have to limit their insurer liability, right? They cannot keep paying out big claims. And the number of claims are increasing. The claim uh, amounts are increasing. So this is going to basically, uh, you know, this is going to affect the insurance business model. So I, I think it's a question of when in my mind and not um, if. Uh, given the number of incidents and uh, what we're seeing out there with uh, these type of attacks. Yeah, so I, I, I would agree. And I, I guess all I would say is if you have one of these plans, uh, whether it's increasing or not, whether or not you're, they're adding additional requirements <clears throat> to you or not, please don't think of that plan as your ransomware response plan. That That is the, right. oops, the plan we had failed uh, and so we have no other option planned, but please develop, uh, you know, a, a plan in advance uh, to, to, to rapidly respond to a ransomware attack so that you can just basically thumb your nose at the bad actors and say, no, thanks. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're good. We're, we're back up online. And, and, and if, if you don't know how to do that, obviously we're a company that would like to help you talk about how to doing that. Stephen, do you have any final thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I I I get your concern, and um, my 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 view on this though is is independent of the insurance. Uh, I think the next couple of years you're going to see uh, a spike in the ransomware attacks on businesses for for largely the same reasons you said before, which is you know corporations, businesses, organizations, you know whomever governments uh, are are much more likely to pay out than individuals. And so you've already seen the pivot from, you know, ransomware doing sort of those broad attacks against individuals, which was harder for them to monetize, to really looking at hitting, you know, organizations that have money that would pay out. Uh, and and then and and then what they're doing is they're looking for kind of the weak spot in the uh, uh, in in that organization, right? Which is often still end users. Uh, that's 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 still one of the best ways in in terms of in terms of hitting the ransomware, and so I think you'll see more and more targeted attacks at these soft areas on the ransomware side, and whether the company's paying out through insurance um, or they had to pay from their own coffers, uh, the reality is, you know, there's always that feeling of well, it's the company's money, it's not my own, which means it it, it makes it a more attractive uh, target for the for the ransomware. Uh, attackers, um, and, and, but but I agree, right? I think I think culturally, one of the things we have to instill in people is, you know, giving up and paying isn't the right answer, and you should be able to a have better defenses, but b, um, you know, have have a recovery plan in place as well. Um, and 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 I think, you know, some some of how you'll see that roll out in a lot of these organizations will be you know, the organization rewarding people and, and commending people for not just throwing up their hands and, and giving in. And so I think this starts from the top, right? I think there has to be in these organizations an executive view that 
we shouldn't be folding in the face of ransomware. We should be able to, as you say, thumb our nose at the at the attackers. But that has to be something driven by the top, that that's something they measure, something they reward, uh, something that uh, they prioritize. And I think if that happens, those organizations will be in a much stronger position, not just in the face of ransomware, but like you said, other disasters that you don't see coming. And so it's just in general a good, healthy practice to have. But it's going to have to start from the top down, I think, on this one. I really like the idea of a positive reinforcement of somehow rewarding people for helping their company to be or or government entity to be, you know, much more prepared for ransomware. And and that actually gives me a positive note on which to end this podcast because it's been pretty depressing for the last 15 or 20 minutes. So uh, listen, I want to thank everybody for listening and I want to thank Prem and I want to thank uh, Stephen for uh, joining us. It's been fun. Thank you, Prem. Thank you, guys. And with that, we're out. 